Welcome to Responsa Radio, where you ask and we answer questions of Jewish law in modern times. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip, speaking with Rabbi Ethan Tucker, Rosh Yeshiva at Machon Hadar, a center for higher Jewish learning based in New York City. All right. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Avi? I'm also doing well. I'm excited about this question. I think it's very timely, especially for us American Jews this year. So here we go. Are there circumstances under which political campaign contributions can count as tzedakah? So this, I think, opens up a larger question of what counts as tzedakah in general. So I'm really curious to hear what you have to say about this. So the obvious answer for most American Jews is yes, if it goes to the Democratic Party. But I don't think that's the answer that we're looking for here. So let's... uh, Let's think about it. Yeah, it is very timely. I think the the right place to start with this is what is tzedakah, right? Just even thinking about why do we have this obligation in the first place? And the halacha category that's used to discuss this in the way that the questioner is asking about it is what's referred to often as ma'aser ksafim, literally the tithe of money. And it's this idea that has roots in the Talmud and kind of gets developed over time, just as there were tithes in the Bible for your agricultural produce, there certainly are also tithes, or there's a tithe, some kind of basic obligation to take a portion of the money that you earn, certainly in a non-agricultural society, and to earmark that for the poor, public goods, that's what we'll talk about a bit, what counts for that category. One of the interesting things that comes up is discussing whether this is a biblical or rabbinic obligation. And while that doesn't really make that much difference in terms of whether you have to do it and how serious it is, it does kind of reflect how much we see this category as being something the Torah kind of expected all along, or it's a kind of rabbinic response to shifting patterns of economic growth and making a livelihood. Um, and you have up until you know very late authorities uh, debates over this. The Taz insists that this institution is from the Torah. His father-in-law, the Bach, insists that it is only midrabanan, only on a rabbinic level. Where are some of the places this would come from the Torah just before we even specify it? Well, the Torah does talk in a couple of places about not just being kind of kind to the stranger and welcoming of the poor, but very specifically saying that when there's someone who is in your community who is poor, you have to strengthen them and give them support. In another place, the Torah says, when you have poor people, you have to give that person as much as they need, as much as they're lacking to kind of bring them back up to a normal level. And in the narrative portions of the Torah, one of the sources that's appealed to is Yaakov, when he's running away from his brother, Esav, and is asking God to be with him, he promises God, saying, if you'll be with me, God, I will give you a tithe. And that's interpreted by many later authorities to mean that you have to give 10% or perhaps even the double usage of aser asrenu in that biblical form is meant to imply two tithes. And that sets another cap on staka that's often invoked, which is giving 20% 
of one's income. So those different verses, whether we think they directly produce the obligation or hint at it, lay out a kind of basic framework, which almost everyone accepts, which is that you have an obligation to give somewhere in the 10 to 20% range as staka every year. So I'm curious right off the bat how we get from giving to individuals to giving to what we would call today charities or organizations that give. Does that feel intuitively part of the text that you just described, or is that a secondary move that happens somewhere along the way? Yeah, I think that's actually a lot of the heart of this question, and I think it's not so obvious at all. One of the things that's interesting when you go back and you look at let's say, the Talmudic discourse around staka, just even thinking about poor people for a minute. You know, there are these institutions. There's sort of the daily collection plate called the Tamhui. There's the weekly collection box called the Kupa. And there's other communal institutions and communal staka gatherers, for sure. And yet, there is no question that they had nothing like the kind of institutionalization of philanthropy that we have today. And perhaps much more to the point, they had, in ways we don't, a notion of poor people kind of presenting themselves to you in a very direct way and asking you to help them out. And now we associate that with either it's homeless people who are on the street or they slip through the cracks of the institutional framework. But we think of the main places where charity work is done is through these institutions. So some of that transferring is definitely complicated and part of what we have to investigate in this question. So let's start with something that really comes from the world of taxes, but which is important for this discussion about Stakai as well. The world of taxes has an important distinction of tax deductions as opposed to tax credits. So tax deductions are things that we say, that was kind of a legitimate, necessary expense that we don't really want to consider part of the money we're going to tax you on. And therefore, it just doesn't count towards the money that we tax you for. So, you know, a person, let's say, makes $50,000 a year and they have to spend $10,000 on rent or something like that. You can imagine giving a tax deduction for that, saying we're going to treat it like you made $90,000 and that's going to be the thing that will apply whatever the tax rate is to. That's a tax deduction. We just remove the income, the money, from what we tax. That's very different from a tax credit, where we say, oh, the money that you spent on your kid's college education, not only won't we tax you on that money, but we will count that money as if you paid taxes. Meaning, let's say your total tax bill came to something like $20,000 a year and you spent $5,000 towards tuition at your kid's school, let's say towards college expenses, something like that. If you gave that as a tax credit, you'd be down to only owing $15,000 on taxes. That is to say, a tax credit is a much more powerful and significant incentive and benefit than is a tax deduction, even though a tax deduction is also helpful because it reduces the amount of tax that you pay. Does that kind of make sense? So just to be clear, we're talking about American tax system here. That's exactly right. It's almost like the government says, you don't have to pay us. You can pay this other institution instead and we'll count it. 
Okay, so the idea with the credit is that we are taking this money and not actually giving it as taxes, and yet it still counts towards the taxes that we owe. Yeah, so this is a language that's used to figure out some of the tzedakah questions as well. So when you want to talk about a, a tzedakah deduction, if you will, uh, the various sources will talk about nikui, lopping off that amount of money. You're sort of wiping off that amount from the amount that you're going to then be taxed at, let's say, a 10% rate for what you have to give for tzedakah. That's different from having a discussion as to whether something is considered to be part of your tzedakah obligation or eligible to fulfill it. Nechshav ma'aser. Now, more of the discussion is actually focused on tzedakah credits than it is on tzedakah deductions, even though in the end I want to come back to tzedakah deductions because I think it may be a helpful way for thinking about some things that are kind of in a gray area. So the main thing that really gets raised is what counts as tzedakah, what counts as ma'aser ksafim towards this 10% that you're supposed to give. And a few lines get drawn right off the bat that I think are really interesting. So for instance, you're definitely not allowed to deduct your own expenses, what it takes you to feed yourself, what it costs for you to live, or the children who are living in your house. And the Arucha Shulchan, who has a fantastic summary of this in his Laws of Tzedakah, he says, God forbid that we would count as Tzedakah people's personal expenses, even the cost of feeding and taking care of their children. Because if you did that, lo the poor would never get a single penny because everyone would count towards their 10% requirement, certainly the 10% that they spend on their own welfare and that of their children. So maybe we're going to use the same framework to uh, see what counts for tzedakah here? That's right. That's just not a deduction. It doesn't count. It's something you are expected to do. Everyone's expected to do it. And that's too bad. You basically have an obligation to structure things such that you reach that point. Now, of course, if you're poor enough such that there will be absolutely nothing left, you can reach a point where the obligation you know, may essentially be unfulfillable. But as a principle... Halakha is generally very demanding that even the poorest must essentially tithe what they receive from charitable organizations as welfare and support in order to give back to other poor people. However, here's a contrast. The Arucha Shulchan says, but if you adopt an orphan and take care of them and bring them into your home, of course, the cost of raising them gets to count towards tzedakah. And here, I think, is a really interesting distinction between kind of expectations, where essentially we say, look, we, we kind of expect people, if they're able, to have children. And certainly, if they do have children, we expect them, as part of having children, to be responsible for raising them. We don't expect people to adopt orphans. That is a kind of above and beyond 
uh, act of kindness, which might, in fact, for some people, be the way they direct their charitable resources. And that's a great example where the same exact activity, having a child in your house who you're taking care of, is viewed dramatically differently based on whether we sort of feel we get that for free or this is something where you are really doing something extraordinary that's above and beyond the call. It's interesting. So this may be a side note, but I'm going to ask it anyway. I've heard a lot of people ask whether my own shul dues or my, or maybe even more extreme, my own day school tuition that I pay for my kids, does that count towards my tzedakah? It sounds like what I'm hearing is that would not count because that feeds my own children. So here I think is where it gets interesting. The Ramah then weighs in in the Shulchan Aruch and says... You are not allowed to use ma'aser money to pay for mitzvot. Okay. So you're not allowed to give candles, lamps, fuel for lights in the synagogue or any other kind of mitzvah of that sort. And certainly not, let's say, buying a lulav and etrog or buying tefillin or things of those sort. It must go to the poor. And this, I think, is an extension of what we just said which is mitzvot are not thought of as kind of elective spiritual pursuits that are also part of some larger economy of supporting Jewish life and living out Jewish values. They are basically a baseline commitment that you are expected to do. And the mitzvah tzedakah is supposed to be about helping the needy, not about fulfilling your or other people's obligations in Jewish life, which is also a financial burden, but not supposed to be, according to the Ramah, reckoned as part of the 10%. Wait, let me just make sure I understand something. Don't use it for mitzvot means for my own fulfillment of mitzvot, or it also means don't buy lulav and etrog for the poor, buy them food instead. Okay. So here is, I think, where it starts to get slippery. I think you've hit on the distinction here, which is the Ramah, strictly speaking, might be limited to don't go out and use your maser money to take care of your own mitzvah responsibilities. It seems like he's broader than that because it seems like he's saying buying things for the synagogue and other things that have some kind of a communal need attached to them. But there are many voices that are highly pressured or looking for a way to limit what he says to things that are highly personal. And one of the most surprising exceptions is an argument that emerges that it's okay to buy books of Jewish learning with your maaser funds, provided, of course, that you're willing to lend them to anyone who wants to use them. And you don't think of them as your own personal private property. But in practice, they may actually be sitting on your shelf and you may be using them. And this loophole kind of opens up all sorts of ways of thinking about how certain public goods even though they are not for the poor per se, may be considered to be perfectly acceptable expenditures of the maaser money. And the Aruch HaShulchan, who I referred to before, tries to kind of thread the needle on this. On the one hand, he is supremely uncomfortable with this. He says, if you go down the path of allowing people to buy books because they'll share them with other people from their maaser 
allotment from the, you know, the 10% that they are required to be spending on these kinds of public causes, well, then what's going to stop someone from buying a shofar for themselves and an etrog and a sukkah and saying, well, you know, I'll invite people over and I'll let people borrow it. And before you know it, people are essentially funding their ritual needs out of the tzedakah budget. And he says a person really, it would be appropriate for them to try not to rely on this leniency in any way. And yet, what he also says is that there are certain things that clearly are unmitigated public goods that are not about a book that's on your shelf at home, which have to be payable out of your maaser obligation. And he includes in that donations to the Beit Midrash, the study institution itself, and then an interesting category, which might be the most relevant for our questioner, those who are in some way public servants. Misharte hakihila. And since these people are not really poor, it seems pretty clear that this is going to pay their salaries, paying for their time. And it says that there's no question that that counts as part of tzedakah for the purpose of reckoning maaser. So thus enters the Jewish nonprofit professional? That seems to be the Jewish nonprofit professional. People who you would look at and say, these people are serving the community, and I think they're doing important work. When I'm reckoning the 10% that I give every year, that goes to them. And that is acceptable to count as tzedakah. Here, I think the Aruch HaShulchan is trying to draw a line between kind of ritual Jewish investment that at the end of the day is about you, even if you're going to share the object or the resources with other people, as opposed to something which really is a communal organization that has some kind of public function. Interesting. So the one shift that I saw here in what you just described is that we stayed in the realm of it has to serve the community, but we now are able to define ourselves as part of this community rather than it having to serve the poor or, you know, underprivileged in some way. That's right. And that, it seems, if you were to ask me, this seems to me like the compromise that emerges. A very hard line reading of the Ramah might be the only thing Maser should go to is actual poor people. On the other side sits this view that says, no, no, you can buy books as long as you're willing to share them with other people. And that could go to a place of saying, as long as you're sort of spreading out the kind of benefits of what you invest in, that can be thought of as some sort of public good. This, I think, this middle road is trying to say, no, 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 things that are for you, you should not be using maser ksafiman even if it's the case that other people will benefit from them, but things that really are a public good, well, then we will entertain the notion that things like books that don't help poor people at all, if they're not sitting on your shelf, but they're sitting in an institution of Jewish learning, which enriches the community, that can be taken out of the Maser Safim budget. So this seems like it's good news for synagogues and day schools, potentially centers of Jewish learning. I'm curious your thoughts on this potentially side topic, which is, it sounds like what you've been describing is donations to those organizations. And I think there's a secondary question, which is what about my own family's dues or my own children's day school tuition? Do those numbers count towards my maaser, my, uh, my tithing donations? Yeah. Okay. So here, I think there's a really important distinction. 
the Aruch HaShulchan, again, goes out of his way after he's explaining that there's you know, no question that you can support public institutions with ma'aser money, but there's no question that you're not allowed to kind of deduct your own expenses, says very specifically, however, paying for your children's education is definitely not payable from ma'aser funds. It is a mitzvah bifnei atzma. This is an independent obligation, which has nothing to do with tzedakah. And unlike, let's say, giving a donation to the Beit Midrash, which is basically a goodwill offering to a public institution, you have an obligation to provide your child with an education and with a Jewish education. And it therefore becomes no different, really, than buying yourself a pair of tefillin or any number of other things which really are about your own specific personal obligation. And that's a line I think is actually a correct line to draw, though I want to complicate it in a second, because I think we also go back to what the Aruch HaShulchan said about your, your personal expenses, which is if you counted day school tuition towards your ma'aser requirement, then poor people would never get a cent, as the Aruch HaShulchan said about your own personal expenses. Because you're talking a scale already of expenditure, uh, which approaches, if it doesn't exceed for many people, 10% of their budget. Um, and at that point, you've eviscerated the category. And so almost just as a common sense response, it can't be that the education of your children counts as a tzedakah credit. So it's the fact that that number of tuition is so high is what makes us want to count it, and at the same time is exactly the reason why we can't. I think that's right. However, what I would suggest may add some nuance to this is going back to our original terminology. What strikes me as much more reasonable, and I will also say this is how I calculate it when I sit down at the end of the year and think things through, would be to treat things like a child's Jewish education not as a tzedakah credit, but as a tzedakah deduction. Which is to say there are a whole set of things which we don't think of as actually fulfilling the mitzvah of tzedakah, but we think of as such a basic level obligation, whether it's as a parent, as a human being, that it doesn't really make a lot of sense to imagine them as if they are completely optional, dispensable income, like the rest of the money that you are taxing. And to me, it seems a very reasonable middle ground on these questions to say, look, you could come up with all kinds of forced explanations of how it's you're really investing in the school and you're doing all sorts of things for the public good that should be able to count, but it strikes me as much more reasonable to say, unless you're giving to the capital campaign where you're actually building a public building, you shouldn't be counting you know, the tuition dollars in any way towards stakah, but it's not as if that is equivalent to money you have spent on a second house <laughs> or some other set of expenditures that add meaning and pleasure to your life. Well, what about a first house? feeding your family. Where do those fall? Right. And right. And as we saw, like the Aruch HaShulchan was very firm saying, no, the first house and, and dinner don't count towards that deduction. And here, yeah, I think you could attack me as not being completely consistent across the board here. And that I'm trying to sort of name a category that feels like 
it is sort of not in the category of basic expenses that everyone has to deal with just sort of to live, but dealing with something that we want kind of the tzedakah and Jewish system to recognize as something that we kind of expect people to do on some level, but that is not the same as everything else. And here I'm sort of venturing. This goes back to my distinction. What the sources are adamant about is that you may not count expenditures towards mitzvot as a tzedakah credit. It's much less clear to me what all those sources think about counting those as tzedakah deductions. Many of them may be small, much smaller than a kind of day school expenditure. It strikes me that the more the number attached to a given mitzvah goes up, the more it's reasonable to say, well, as much as we might say this shouldn't count as a credit, it might count as a deduction. That, at least to me, is some of the kind of value-based thinking you might engage that is not, I think, you know, directly in any way answered by some of the core sources here. And to me, seems like a kind of fair middle ground way to think it through. Great. Okay, so let me bring us back to our original question, which was about political campaign contributions, which at this point, I still feel like I have no idea how that's going to fit in. Yeah, so look, I go back to this term, the Misharte Kehila, the people who are serving your community. Now, there's no question there that that refers in the Aruch HaShulchan to leaders in the Jewish community. I think the question with campaign contributions is, can you make some kind of a case that, you know, some of the people who are running for office, at least the ones hopefully that you are supporting, you think are going to play some kind of key role in communal leadership that is going to make a big difference in people's lives. Now, here's where I'll tell you, honestly, if you ask me, I'm not inclined to say that campaign contributions should count even as a deduction. I certainly don't think they should count as a Maser credit. It feels way too far uh, from a clear donation either to the poor or a public institution. I could see the argument of treating such donations as a tzedakah deduction, as it were, that the amount that you give towards that, you don't then tax again. It's not my inclination, because my inclination is that at the end of the day, political campaigns have too much inefficiency to them in terms of their direct delivery of any kind of public good. You're essentially paying for TV commercials. You're not paying people's salary to actually go out and do any kind of direct service. And in that sense, it seems misguided to me to even count it as a deduction. But, you know, it could be that also not all elections are the same, not all positions are the same. And I think there is some room in this term, for imagining public officials or potential public officials as playing enough of a public good, certainly in a society where Jews feel very interwoven with the political needs and, uh, and campaigns of the day, uh, to imagine that as at least not being double taxed, as it were. But it's not the call. It's not the call I would make on my own balance sheet. One more curveball before we sign off. Do you think there's any difference if the political campaign is one in the United States, another country, or in Israel? Yeah, they feel all the same to me. I feel like politics is politics is politics. Much more compelling to me would be a distinction between 
different kinds of offices, ones where really the campaign funds are not in any way going to, you know, hiked up rates on uh, private television networks, but somehow going more directly to a public good. But again, I'm, I'm skeptical of the whole thing. And if someone were to kind of just ask me personally for a religious recommendation, I would say, don't count that money. Just treat that like any number of other expenses of things you choose to do with your money. And that means that in part, what you're deciding is, should I spend this money on giving to the poor? Or should I spend this money on this campaign? And I might have to choose. And it seems to me that it's appropriate that that might sometimes have to be a choice and we shouldn't necessarily make it easier for people to avoid that choice. There are so many different things that we can do with our money that we view as making the world a better place. So I think this is a helpful way to break down some of these options and think about whether or not they count towards our technical halachic uh, obligation of tzedakah. So thank you. I swung the election, friends. That's no small order. To just blow nose and sweep all the votes from Canada to the Mexican border. Response Radio is a project of the Center for Jewish Law and Values at Mahon Hadar and is produced by Jewish Public Media, which creates, curates, and promotes excellent Jewish content. Have a halacha question you'd like answered on the show? Email us at halacha at mechonhadar.org. You can also leave a message at 215-297-4254. My friend, my friend, I've won the election.